If you listen to the previous episode of Microbe Mail, you'll be feeling a little more comfortable with interpreting TB diagnostic tests. But that's really only half the battle with this complex bacterium. Understanding how they should be managed, particularly in the era of drug resistance, is another challenge altogether. Hi, this is Microbe Mail, and I am your host, Vindana Chibabai. On the menu for this episode are the MDR, pre-XDR, and XDR TB treatment regimens. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Stacy. Sarah is the Head of Infectious Diseases at the Charlotte Matheke Johannesburg Academic Hospital. Hi, Sarah. It's great to finally have you join me on Microbe Mail. Welcome. Thanks for the invitation, Vin. I'm delighted to be here. As always, before we head into the content of this episode, I want to remind you to sign up on our website to receive email updates of new episode releases, as well as our episode storyboards. You can follow us on social media or on YouTube for updates. All the mentioned links are in the episode show notes. And remember, Microbe Mail is for sharing. So Sarah, are you ready to tackle this topical TV topic? Yep, let's go. Okay, so I suppose the first question we kind of need to ask is, how common is MDR TB in South Africa, in Africa, and in the rest of the world? Well, unfortunately, TB has fallen off the radar in the last two years with the onset of the COVID pandemic. Um, The WHO estimates that 10 million people developed TB in 2020, but only about 5.8 million were actually diagnosed. And a million and a half people died from TB in 2020, at best guess, which is about 100,000 more than the year before. So the declines in TB incidents that were seen over the last few years have stopped. Um, And we're probably seeing these previous gains being even further reversed over the next two years or so. And as far as drug-resistant TB is concerned, there's bad news there as well, with 15% fewer people receiving treatment in 2020 compared to previous years. That's worrying. It is worrying. And you might be confused looking at those lower absolute numbers and be inclined to say, well, fewer TB cases must be a good thing, right? Mm. But maybe our COVID masks are working, but it actually reflects a breakdown of TB services rather, lockdowns and the diversion of services towards covid have meant that TB programs have not functioned properly. Mm -hmm. They've had resources constrained and people have been unable or reluctant to access those services for various reasons. That's an interesting point, Sarah. Can you elaborate on what you mean? So in South Africa, our current numbers are about 330 cases of TB a year. But sadly, we treat less than 60% of those cases. So there are 40% of, of cases out there transmitting. Wow. We diagnosed a little over 6,800 cases of DRTB in 2020, but that's a 52% decline in the number of cases from the previous year. Those that were diagnosed received treatment, but we still missed 7,000 odd cases of DRTB in South Africa in 2020. That's pretty scary. There were also 733 patients diagnosed and treated for XDRTB in South Africa in 2020. And I think it's also worthwhile to mention the economic impact of TB. We've certainly seen how a a pandemic can depress economies, but we should remember that TB constitutes an ongoing pandemic and almost half the people with TB face catastrophic costs from the disease, which means that they pay for treatment or admission or transport to get their treatment. They lose time of work. Mm -hmm. um, They may lose jobs um, to the extent that they're expending 20% of their whole household's income on treating their TB. 
And the number of people facing catastrophic costs rises to almost 90% if the disease they're treating is drug-resistant TB. Sure. So the bottom line is that in a world facing wars and new pandemics, TB is still important. Because some of that's pretty devastating. And I think there's quite an important message in that statement that we forget the old enemies as we start facing newer ones. And certainly with TB, we need to be very careful not to turn a blind eye. For sure. So I believe there have been some updates to the definitions of the terms MDR, pre-XDR, XDR. They have. Um, so this dates from a couple of years ago, and the definition of MDR-TB um, remains the same. So if the organism is resistant to rifampicin and isoniazid, then it's multidrug resistant. Okay. But the distinction between rifampicin-resistant TB and MDR-TB um, is for the most part academic because the treatment is, is very similar for both, right. if not identical, in fact. Uh, the definitions for pre-XDR and XDR have changed recently because it no longer makes sense to include resistance to an injectable agent in the definitions when we don't use them routinely anymore. Right. So the definitions are these. Pre-XDR-TB is rifampicin-resistant or MDR-TB. That's also resistant to any fluoroquinolone. Okay. XDR-TB is rifampicin-resistant or MDR-TB. That's also resistant to any fluoroquinolone and at least one other group A drug. And the group A drugs are essentially nezolid and bedaquilin. Okay, so if we had to count the number of drugs resistant for each group, we would say it's two or three drugs resistant for pre-XDR mm -hmm. and three to four drugs resistant for XDR, as long mm -hmm. as the drugs come from the classes that you've mentioned. Yeah, that's right. So there's been a number of trials and new regimens for MDR-TB. Can you give us some background to these? So while we've been treating uh, drug-sensitive TB the same way we did 60 years ago, uh, drug-resistant TB therapy has moved along quite speedily over the last seven years or so. So this started with an uncontrolled trial, which produced what became known to all of us as the Bangladesh Regimen. Yeah. The previous WHO guidelines dated from 2011, um, and we were treating patients at that stage with injectables for eight months with an average of five drugs. The full course of treatment was 20 months at least. Side effects from injectable agents were significant. Deafness was a major issue. And still only about half of our MDR TB patients in South Africa made it out alive. Wow. The Bangladesh Regimen then used a shorter course of 40 weeks in total with only 16 weeks of an injectable. But because this was a regimen that was implemented in a sort of operational, programmatic manner, there needed to be better controlled trial evidence that this actually worked. Okay. So along came the STREAM trials, um, which included the drugs used in the Bangladesh regimen, which were canamycin, INH, mm -hmm. high-dose moxifloxacin, ethionamide, clofazamine, an old leprosy drug, ethambutol, and PZA given in the same way as the Bangladesh regimen. Okay. And this shorter duration produced results that were as good as the longer duration, uh, longer regimen. But look, I mean, to be honest, that was still only 50% um, success, which was pretty terrible. Um, and the side effects of the injectables were still considerable. So even after the introduction of that regimen, it was clear that treatment for MDR therapy still needed to change. Right. So then why has treatment regimen changed and when did it actually change? So after... No new antibiotics for TB, and yeah. really no new antibiotics for anything. Suddenly the pipeline wasn't completely empty. There was this little trickle of drugs in development coming through. Mm -hmm. So in 2012, bedaquiline became available, and here was the first completely new TB drug with a completely new mechanism of action. Um, it's an inhibitor of mycobacterial ATP synthase, which demonstrates faster time to culture conversion, 
and it increases the proportion of patients with cultural conversion overall. Right. So in 2013, the South African Department of Health made Pedaquilin available through a clinical access program. The clinical access program lasted about two years, and then in 2015, Bedaquiline was made available for patients within the national TB program. For specified patients, so patients with um, INHA and CATG mutations conferring high-level resistance to INH, those who had pre-XDR by the definition um, of that time, which was um, additional fluoroquinolone and second-line injectable resistance, and patients unable to tolerate the long injectable regimen for one reason or another. Okay. And it's really this last group which changed the way we approached MDR-TB treatment in South Africa. Because if you think about it, no one should be expected to tolerate 16 weeks of a painful injection that's probably going to make you deaf. Yeah. And patient activists and advocates made this uh, very clear at the 2018 South African TB conference. Um, and pretty much immediately after the conference, the Department of Health announced um, a fully oral regimen containing bedaquiline, linezolid, and levofloxacin um, as a backbone in a seven-drug intensive phase regimen with a full duration of therapy of up to 11 months. <laughs> so that's quite different from what it was. Absolutely. Um, and then much of the programmatic data from South Africa that came out after the introduction of this regimen supported the decision by the WHO to change guidelines the following year to a fully oral regimen. The rollout between 2015 and 2018 showed that incorporating bedaquiline into an MDR regimen resulted in a three-fold reduction in all-cause mortality, and treatment success rose from 60% to 73%. That's incredible so pretty compared good. to previous results. And a previous huge improvement. So can you talk us through the current MDR regimen and the trials that produce the data? Sure. So, well, the WHO classifies the available drugs into classes A, B, and C and recommends the inclusion of these drugs according to their importance um, to a successful regimen. So class A drugs are bedaquiline, linezolid, and afluroquinolone. And the fluoroquinolones are either moxifloxacin or levofloxacin. And all these class A drugs should be included in the regimen. Class B drugs are clofazamine and cycloserine or terizodone. At least one of these op- options and maybe two should be incorporated. Mm-hmm. And then the class C drugs are ethambutol, delaminid, PZA, ethionamide or protheonamide, and PASS. And then possibly an aminoglycoside and a carbapenem. And the carbapenems are imipenem or meropenem. The WHO says pick some of these drugs to complete the regimen or if class A or B drugs can't be used. So these are the recommendations for designing the regimen. But really, in practice, it's pretty cookie-cutter from a practical point of view for the most part. Mm -hmm. The South African standardized short regimen currently consists of the following seven drugs. Bedaquilin, levofloxacin, linezolid, clofazamine, high-dose INH, ethambutol, and PZA. This is an intensive phase, which should last about four months, with linezolid given for at least two months, and the continuation phase with levo, clofazamine, PZA, and ethambutol for another five or seven months. Most of the patients will qualify for a shorter regimen, and sometimes that's because patients only ever have a gene expert result. The direct LPA may not be sent or may be unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Cultures are frequently negative, in my own experience. And for those who meet the criteria for the short course, it's really made a huge difference to the patient's experience of treatment. Yeah, from what you've explained to us from prior treatment regimens, I can imagine it would be. Um, So it's quite helpful to have this cookie-cutter sort of short regimen 
for most Absolutely. clinicians to actually follow. And then there is also a longer course regimen. There though. is. And so which one would you use and when? So I don't really want to rehash the guidelines, which obviously everyone can read. Um, but there are some few situations in which you don't want the cookie cutter approach. Um, and some features should alert you to that. So firstly, CNS disease disqualifies the short course, as does any clinical disease which is complicated. And that's complicated extrapulmonary disease. And the def definition of, of complicated is pretty generous when you read the guidelines. Or any extensive pulmonary disease with cavitation. So if a patient's been treated for MDR-TB before with second-line drugs, and particularly with the new drugs, if there's a CACI or INH mutation, sorry, CACI and INH mutation. So that's the double mutation That's the for double INH. mutation. Um, if their HB is low, um, if you know that there's second-line resistance, or really if you're just not entirely sure, um, then a long regimen is recommended. And the truth is, if you're starting a long regimen, it's not a terrible idea to talk to your friendly MDR-TB site um, when even better regimens might be on offer. Absolutely. So thanks for that brief and succinct summary. And I think for the listener's benefit, I'll make sure to add the South African TB guidelines in the show notes so they can look Good through idea. that. Sarah, what are some of these newer drugs and newer regimens that you mentioned? Well, recently the final results of the NICS trial were released and showed that a three-drug completely oral regimen for patients with XDR-TB and selected patients with MDR-TB had treatment success rates of 90%. Wow. Pretty amazing. It wasn't a controlled trial. There was no standard of care arm. But here we've gone from, a, from six to seven years ago, successfully treating 20% of XDR patients and 44% of them die, mm. to this regimen where we could cure 90% with three drugs, and it's a six-month regimen. It's phenomenal. incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, so this regimen consisted of bedaquiline and pertominid, which is a novel um, nitroimidazole like delaminid. Uh, pertominid was developed for the treatment of TB and combined with linezolid. So obviously there's always concern about how well patients are going to tolerate linezolid for that long. Yeah. The dose was 1,200 milligrams a day, which is higher than the standard short-course regimen. But patients actually managed surprisingly well. Um, a large majority did develop peripheral neuropathy. 80% um, did require some kind of dose modification or discontinuation, but mostly it was mild. Most of it resolved. Some of it took two years to resolve, but the vast majority of cases did resolve. That's very interesting. It is interesting. And it's, and it's overall great news. So now there's a, a clinical access program running in South Africa for this regimen. Uh, we call it the BPAL regimen. Um, it's available to patients meeting certain criteria. Um, and it also has regulatory approval in the States, and it's being used in clinical practice. So then after the next trial, then came along the Xenix trial, which was the same population group receiving the same drugs for the same duration, but looking for an optimal dose of linezolid, okay. which was 1,200 milligrams for two or six months or 600 milligrams for two or six months. Okay. And firstly, what was interesting was there was much less peripheral neuropathy, even in the 1,200 milligram for six-month group about half in this trial compared to the next trial. And overall, a 600 milligram dose for six months is probably the best option. So preserved efficacy associated with fewer side effects. Right. Sure, that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So because of the length of time patients require therapy and because of the adverse effects associated with the drugs, we also need to make sure patients are closely monitored while they're on treatment. Mm -hmm. 
So how should the patient be monitored? And what needs to be done from the perspective of retesting, monitoring for side effects, and also other laboratory tests that need um, during the course of therapy? And also lastly, which drug interactions should we be concerned about? Okay, sure. So ideally, every month you should be doing a TB culture with sensitivities. Mm -hmm. The definition of, of cure is now slightly different. Cure means two consecutive negative TB cultures um, at least seven days apart during the period of therapy. Okay. Uh, in terms of monitoring of side effects, obviously you need to interview the patient at every visit and ask about side effects. We do an ECG at every um, visit to make sure that there's no um, QT prolongation. We assess for anemia. We assess for peripheral neuropathy, including optic neuropathy is important. Mm -hmm. um, patients do go bronze with their clofazamine and should be warned about it and provided with sunscreen. Um, it's not permanent and patients should be told that as well. So monitoring of side effects is, is obviously important. Mm -hmm. And then as far as drug reactions are concerned, drug interactions are concerned, um, one issue that might arise is the case where the gene expert is rifampicin resistant and the LPA on the culture is rifampicin sensitive and you might be inclined to add rifampicin to your DR regimen. Okay. Firstly, rifampicin, as we all know, is a very potent inducer of the cytochrome P450 system and can't be given with bedaquiline. Rifabutin is an alternative option. But really, there's no reason to suppose that the drug-resistant regimen with bedaquiline won't work as well for the susceptible population as for the resistant population. Okay. Um, then for patients on ART, and we have a large number of those patients in our clinic, it's important to remember that if Favarin's also prolongs the QT interval and is a moderate cytochrome uh, P450 inducer, right. so it should, uh, should be avoided in mm. combination. Dolutegravir is a better option, as well as a better antiretroviral in general. Um, and also to remember to avoid the prescription of linezolid and AZT together from a bone marrow suppression point of view. So, Sarah, on microbe mail, we also try and address any gender-specific or pediatric-specific issues related to the topic we're discussing. So when it comes to treating MDR-TB, is there anything specific we should think about or remember from a gender perspective or when treating children? So the gender, the gender question is, is actually really quite complex. Um, in terms of treating MDR specifically... The main issue is really pregnancy, and it's best to advise women undergoing MDR therapy to delay pregnancy until completion of therapy, and to remember to provide contraception to women for at least the duration of therapy. Women who are diagnosed while pregnant should be treated, no doubt, because mm -hmm. maternal and pregnancy outcomes are obviously poor if it's untreated. Yeah. Uh, linezolid and fluoroquinolones are category C, but the benefit of using those drugs clearly outweighs the risk of not uh, treating the TB correctly. Mm. The recommendation in South Africa and from the WHO is to use standard short course and long courses, but to avoid ethionamide and also to avoid aminoglycosides if there's any reason to contemplate using them. Right. In terms of outcome, some studies, but not all, suggest that one risk factor for a poorer outcome is being male. And just while I was looking at this, just an interesting point in terms of TB gender differences in general it's pretty well accepted that TB prevalence is higher in men than in women from about the age of 15 to 20, mm. thereabouts, and, and further on. Mm -hmm. About two-thirds of, two of TB patients are men and about a third are women. And this applies to TB mortality as well. Why that is the case is not really clear. One question that you might ask is that, is this that more women are notified 
but the prevalence in men and women is the same? Or is it actually that the prevalence is genuinely high in men? Mm. Several prevalence survey studies and meta-analyses suggest that men do actually have more TB. And this applies to both low-income, high-burden countries and high-income, low-burden countries. Um, another question that you might ask is, is this a difference in TB infection or TB disease? In other words, is the prevalence of latent TB between men and women the same? And men just develop active TB more frequently? Or is that not the case? Unfortunately, again, that's not clear. It seems to be that there are an equal number of st studies saying that latent disease is the same and others that say the opposite. Mm. So what are the other factors that might play into the gender differences? There may be social factors that have an impact. We need to think about things like occupation, for example, in South Africa, mining and mining. silica exposure. Absolutely. Yeah. We know are significant risk factors for TB, um, and that industry involves mostly men. By the same token, however, indoor bio biofuel exposure may put women at, at risk of lung disease that predisposes to, to TB disease. Mm -hmm. Smoking and alcohol use, including alcohol use disorders, are more common in men, and both of those are risk factors for TB. In some studies, a history of imprisonment um, is suggested as a contributor, as men are more likely to be imprisoned than women, and higher rates of TB are observed in prisoners. Right. HIV infection is well known to be associated with TB, and this is a really interesting fact. In South Africa, despite the fact that the ratio of HIV infection in women compared to men is 3.4 to 1, there's still a male predominance in TB disease. This is very interesting. interesting. Mm. Um, there may obviously be differences in how long it takes males to seek care and be given a diagnosis of TB. That often comes up. It does come up often. Men don't take care of themselves as well as women do. <laughs> um, and there may also be some intrinsic differences in immune and inflammatory responses to TB between men and women. So it's a really interesting question and one that there is no easy answer to. So um, when it comes to then gender, we must always remember that if there's a female patient who's on treatment, don't forget to give them contraception. Absolutely. If they're not pregnant. And I think this is probably something that's often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and the poor outcomes in males seem to be also consistent with community-acquired pneumonia data and, and some for COVID as well. So it seems that respiratory infections in males in general are associated with, with poor outcomes. outcomes. Mm. Very interesting. Something worth looking at. Definitely. And then for kids, um, you know, for an adult physician, that's an even harder question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. We tend to think of kids as very short adults um, or possibly pets. <laughs> Um, and oh often goodness. a bit stumped. <laughs> the best advice, um, I think, would be to consult an expert. So this is, you know, a pediatrician who regularly treats MDR in children when yeah. you make that diagnosis. I think that's good. So standard reg uh, regimens are recommended for kids, although in South Africa, um, our guideline recommends replacing bedaquiline with delaminid or PAS in kids under 12. Although that's not the case, the WHO recommends um, giving bedaquiline in kids over the age of three. So basically, for kids, the drugs are the same, but consulting an expert is a good idea, and it's important to keep a very close eye out for the same side effects that might be observed in adults. So that's uh, QT prolongation, peripheral neuropathy, optic neuritis, anemia, and those might end up being detected later in kids, so it's mm -hmm. very important to be, um, to be observant. Currently, the BPAL regimen does not have approval for use in children, um, and that's mainly because of the predominant. But experienced clinicians may consider its use if other regimens are not available. Okay. So that's very helpful. Thanks. Now, Sarah, mm -hmm. you know we like playing games on microbe mail, right? 
I do. <laughs> so you're ready to play a game with me I'm today? I'm scared, but let's give it a go. <laughs> Look, the stakes are always high because if you win, you get a microbe named after you. Like, what could Fantastic. be better than that? <laughs> okay, so today we're going to play another microbe riddle. All right. And what that means is that I give you a riddle about a microbe and you kind of have to tell me who that is. Mm. I've got to be honest, I was a little unprepared for today's microbe mail, microbe game. But I was listening to the WITS Department of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases case presentation this morning, mm-hmm. and I got inspiration for the riddle from the case presented. Mm-hmm. So here it is. I am a bacterium, and I look sort of curly. Try as you might, you cannot culture me in your laboratory. You rely on antibodies to detect me in patients. I'm exquisitely susceptible to cheap antibiotics. But I'm becoming difficult to treat as drug access has become problematic. Which microbe am I? I am Treponema pallidum. Woohoo! Well done! <laughs> I'm sure the first line gave it away. It did. I'm <laughs> But uh, yeah, so interesting. The case that was presented today was um, syphilis in pregnancy. Mm. And we sort of had that discussion about you know, there aren't many alternatives to penicillin. And there isn't also much data in terms of using third-generation cephalosporins. It's becoming people, very challenging. It is. And worldwide rates of congenital mm. syphilis have, have gone up. So quite worrying. A medieval disease. Coming That's back coming to back to bite us. Yeah, mm. absolutely. <laughs> so well done, Sarah. Um, your official name in the microbe male world is now going to be Sarah Bacillus Stacygenes. Fantastic. You like I it. love it. <laughs> Your patients can start calling you that. Oh, now. <laughs> okay, last but not least, Sarah, do you have a quick take-home message or any final tips for our listeners? Sure. Um, just to say that treatment for MDR has become much better for the patient and much easier for the clinician, but can still be challenging at times, and it's important to reach out to the experts in the field when you're faced with some of those cases. And that's what I do. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me on Microbe Mail. Could I possibly entice you to join me again sometime in the future? I would love that. (laughs) Awesome. Before you go, please remember to click on the form in the show notes to rate this episode from amazing to awful. We'd love any additional feedback by email or even on social media. That's it from me, Vin. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.